Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Seems you cannot read much about the economy these days without the I word popping up. Inflation being that I word. Global News writes, here's the headline, U.S. consumer prices surged 4.2% in April as inflation worries escalate. Financial Post, investors are freaking out as U.S. inflation posts its biggest gain in almost 12 years. CNBC, Wall Street pioneer Thomas Petterfee says he's worried inflation in U.S. could become an unstoppable situation. Even Warren Buffett is cautioning about inflation. What is the reason for all this angst? Why are we here now? Marvin Ryder joins us from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. Always love having you, Marvin. How are you tonight? I'm glad to be with you. You know, I, I would have thought as intro music for this session, you might have used Jump by Van Halen, given how uh, inflation there, everyone's worried about it jumping all over the place. Well, I mean, yeah, you know what? There's a lot of songs that could have worked for this because, you know, Jump and any money song or whatever else. And, and clearly, Marvin, clearly there's something going on here. We're suddenly talking about inflation after a lot of years where it seemed we had very little concern about this. So what is going on? Mm -hmm. Well, let me take you back to, (laughs) I know no one wants to go back there, but let me take you back to 2020. We had this, this marvelous thing called COVID sweep through. And in the first half of the year, both Canada and the United States fell into a recession. A recession happens when your economy shrinks rather than grows. It shrinks in two consecutive quarters. And in the first half of 2020, we lost nearly 12% as everything was shut down. Now, we regained a certain amount of that in the second half of the year. But if you take a look at 2020 as a whole, our economy dropped nearly 5%. So what are we expecting in 2021? Well, we're expecting a rebound. We're expecting when we can reopen all facets of the economy, and that would include travel and tourism and hospitality, that we'll regain that 5%. Okay, that all makes sense. So why are we worried about inflation? Well, there tends to be, and I'm going to use that word again, tends to be a high correlation between the growth in the economy and the inflation rate, though it's not perfect. And I can give you an example again from 2020. Our economy shrank by 5%, but we had inflation of roughly 1% last year. So, oh, prices went up even though the economy shrank, and there are good reasons for that. But now that we're going to get this rebound this year, everyone is worried, worried that we may see, and I'm going to again use that word, may see inflation really take off. So what's so wrong with that if our economy is growing 4% or 5%? So what? Well, of course, uh, the official policy of both the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve Board is they would like to keep inflation around 2%. You know, two and a half is okay, 2.8 is okay, but they don't really want it to get to 3, 4, 5, 6%. And so what would they do? How would they respond if inflation started to creep up? Well, guess what they would do? They would increase interest rates. They would make money more expensive. And if they make it more expensive, then consumer spending would slow down. And hopefully, hopefully that would drive inflation lower. That's quite contrary to the policy they announced just a couple of months ago in which they said they would keep interest rates low through all of 2021 and all of 2022. So if I'm an investor on Wall Street or on the Toronto Stock Exchange and I thought money was going to be cheap for a couple of years and now it might suddenly get a lot more expensive real fast, I'm concerned. Frankly, again, the other concern is if the banks start to up their interest rates, what influence might that have on the housing market? Could that trigger the bubble? So, you know, it's like chicken little, sky is falling, everyone's (coughs) running around like their head is cut off. 
I'm not sure any of this is going to happen, but they finally have something to talk about that isn't so negative and isn't about mm. COVID. Well, and one of the, the, the constant things or very common things, maybe common is a better word than constant that I, that I read as I, as I follow these stories is a lot of the people who are warning about this are saying this has, this is coming at least in some measure from the massive government spending uh, in down in the States for sure up here as well, that it, it, especially if part of the way to find new money is to print new money, this will lead to inflation. True. Well, it, it, and again, it could. Now, Canada and the United States responded differently. What we did in Canada last year was, if you found yourself without a job, if you suddenly were non-essential and staying at home, we created the CERB, and we borrowed $82 billion to give those people that CERB payment. But I never collected a dollar of CERB, and I bet you never collected a dollar of CERB, because our our jobs weren't affected by it, or at least weren't affected to the extent that we needed a support from the government. In the United States, the response was different. They just sent everybody a check, and I, and I haven't really kept a complete tally on this, but I think so far they've sent them uh, close to $2,000. It might actually be closer to $2,400. Everybody, man, woman, and child, whether you needed it or not, well, you can guess what's happening. Uh, yes, the poorest people out there you know, need this money to pay the rent and put food on the table. But if you're relatively wealthy, what are you going to do with the $2,400? Well, you're going to spend it. Hey, it's found money. So you've got consumer spending. This is also what drove, you know, these stocks. Remember the whole thing about GameStop, what have you? People had some extra money. So let's go have some fun in the stock market. And and so therefore, the United States uh, response to COVID, quite different than Canada's, and could, could see some of that reckless spending that could drive up inflation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about inflation because this seems to be just the story of the week. Now, maybe it's just the story of the week or maybe it's more than that. But there seems to be this spreading fear of inflation. Now, Marvin, to be fair, and you've alluded to it, much of this is coming from the states. That's unquestionable. But we bring in, we import a whole lot of stuff from the States. So if all of a sudden they start to see significant inflation, that's going to drive their prices up. Is this not going to, by definition, affect us? Yes. Yes, it would. And so let me, again, give you a couple of quick examples. I think everyone is quite well aware of what's happened with lumber prices over the last year. Absolutely. Uh, now, that isn't caused directly by what we've been talking about, but boy, have we seen inflation there. Now, what caused that inflation? A year ago, as we shut down industries, the people in the lumber industry, whether you're chopping down trees or turning it into to plywood or just regular lumber, said, well, if everyone's locking down, you know, they're not going to be building houses, they're not going to need lumber, so why don't we just shut down for a little while? Of course, no one had realized that when we were trapped at home, suddenly finishing that basement or redoing that deck would top to our list. So they shut down the supply, the demand shot up, and yes, we've had this tremendous inflation so that one board is, is worth more than, you know, a front tire on your car. Now, that's not permanent. It will change. Uh, we also saw here in the last week in the United States, because of that uh, ransomware attack on that major pipeline company, uh, a concern. Suddenly, pipes were not delivering gasoline to the East Coast. I don't know if you've seen the photos, but people are out with cans filling up, stocking up on gasoline in case there's a shortage, and they can't restart the pipeline. And, of course, that led prices of gasoline to start to go up. 
So I'm not saying you won't see temporary, temporary bouts of inflation that are sort of off the charts, but this is simply caused by supply chain problems. In other words, people not realizing how people were going to react during this pandemic. After all, the last one we had was 100 years ago. We'll get some of this wrong. But I don't see any fundamental reason for us to be worried about rocketing inflation. Temporary inflation and also some inflation due to the bounce back But I think I'm going to take my tune, not from Warren Buffett or a Wall Street investor, but I'm going to listen to the governor of the Bank of Canada, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. And at this point, they've not sounded any alarm, so I'm not worrying either. What is a number that we, if we're talking inflation in Canada, what's a number that you've said like 3%? They don't want it to get above, say, 3%, but two, two, okay, two, and then, you know, 2.8 in that ballpark. At what point do we become concerned if the, if the number was to change? Is it three? Is it four? Is there a number that we panic at or start to get very concerned? <laughs> well, I hope we never panic, but the number enough. gets us concerned. So certainly anything over two, but what's more important is not one month, but multiple months in a row. In other words, you know, for various reasons, maybe this month inflation will be 2.2%. Okay, we can live with that. But is it 2.3% the next month, 25 Is this going in the wrong direction? And if I'm, again, the governor of the Bank of Canada or the chair of the Federal Reserve, if I were to see two or three months in a row where inflation was growing, getting well over 2%, heading towards 3%, I would say, hmm, I'd better put the brakes on things by raising those interest rates, and and I would have to weigh the consequences of raising those interest rates, like, for instance, maybe slowing down or retarding the real estate market um, versus trying to calm inflationary pressures. And and you just have to trust me to say that these nice people, the Bank of Canada, Federal Reserve Board, they have lots of people out there gathering lots of data to see what is causing the inflation. So it's a bit like a fever. You know, we tend to run a little hotter when the weather is hotter. That doesn't necessarily mean there's anything wrong with you. If the market's got a little bit of inflation, but we know the reason and it's nothing to panic about, we may not take preventative measures. But that's something we're going to watch as we bounce back. We And here's the other reason why. We think it's going to be a pretty fast bounce back. I know we're into the third lockdown, and I know we're going to have it extended into June, But every time we've come out of the lockdown, the economy has bounced back really quickly, almost like a rubber band. Now, we haven't quite got all the sectors open, but we believe we'll get back to sort of normal operations pretty quickly. Well, that that will create some short-term inflation, but it shouldn't cause long-term inflation. And that's what these governors are going to be looking at. Let me ask you one more thing. We've got time for one more, and that's this. One of the words that you will also find if you read these stories is hyperinflation, that they are throwing. Some are saying we've, we've got to be careful. We don't end up in hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, and, and what do we do if that – it doesn't sound like that would happen, but what do we do? <laughs> well, you're so young, Scott, you wouldn't remember this at all, but I am old enough to remember the early 1980s where regular inflation, just regular old inflation was running at – 12%, 14%, suddenly bank interest rates got up to 20% on a mortgage, and nobody wants to see those days. We've done a really good job in the last 40 years keeping a lid on inflation and therefore keeping, uh, keeping the economy chugging along at a nice regular pace. Hyperinflation would be something like a 10%, 15%, and that's, that's for North America, that's for the developed world. Uh, Scott, not to get you off topic, but there are some developing countries out there in the world where they have a 100% inflation 
inflation every year. I think Zimbabwe one year had 10,000% inflation in one year. No one's talking about those kinds of hyperinflationary numbers, but for us, hyperinflation would see prices grow by 10% in one year across the board, not in any one specific area, but across the board. I don't think any of that is likely, but again, we haven't come through a pandemic for 100 years. We don't quite know exactly what the future is going to hold, so we've got to watch it closely and adjust the speed of the car accordingly. Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, we sometimes lose track of when the Olympics are coming until they're here. We find we sort of remember a couple days before. And go, oh, yeah, clear the clear the evenings. Got to be able to watch Olympics and catch up on my every four year supply of modern pentathlon that I would never watch otherwise or whatever else. Uh, but, you know, we kind of forget otherwise. Well, here's a reminder. Assuming the Tokyo Olympics go ahead as they are now planned to do so, we're about 70 days, a month, uh, sorry, two months, give or take, with a few extra days, two months and a week or thereabouts. That's how far we are away. We are not far. We are weeks, really, away from athletes beginning to get on planes and going over to Japan to get ready. However, as has been the situation for well, well over a year now with COVID, there are those who say, just a minute, let us pump the brakes just a little bit here. Is this really a good idea? I want to bring in Dr. Jules Boykoff. He is a professor at the Pacific University. He is He has written power games of political history of the Olympics, activism in the Olympics, celebration, celebrating, celebration, capitalism, the Olympic games. He is also, and I point this out because I think it's really important because we sometimes think of academics as people who may not, you know, they may not love sports or he's a former professional soccer player. He's a guy who is passionate about sports, yet he has also written that maybe it is time to really pump the brakes as in pull the emergency brake and say, can't do this. Jules Boykoff joins us now. Jules, thanks for doing this. Very much appreciate it. A pleasure. Good to be with you again. Well, we always love having you on here. And, and I must tell you that um, I was shocked. But after I saw that you had written this saying, look, we got to stop here. I was really surprised to find out how few people in Japan have been vaccinated. I somehow had this idea that Japan was way ahead of a lot of the world and was doing really well. They're not. That's correct, and that's a key factor in all of this, is that less than 2% of the population in Japan is vaccinated. And on top of that, there's actually quite a bit of vaccination hesitancy on the part of the population there. So they have some convincing to do uh, before they can get a full rollout going. I mean, I've been talking to my connections in Japan in the last week or so, and it's only now that they're getting the 80-year-olds uh, in to get their vaccinations there's no way that the general population will be vaccinated by the time the Olympics are scheduled to start on the 23rd of July. So, I mean, it's a fascinating point. And the follow-up would be, is that reason enough to cancel the Olympics? And the reason I ask that, because you would say, yes, of course it is, if nobody's vaccinated, but there are no foreign fans being allowed and the athletes could theoretically be kept in an Olympic bubble. So does it matter what percentage of the broader Japanese public is vaccinated? Well, I, I would push back a little bit on whether these athletes can be theoretically bubbled off from the rest of the world. We've seen a couple of sports events recently that have been much smaller in scale than the Olympic Games. 
trying to pull off events and have been unsuccessful at that, either to close them down partway through or postpone them to a later date. And, you know, the Olympics are this incredibly audacious event involving 11,000 or so athletes, not to mention tens of tens of thousands of other people that will be coming in from other countries around the world that are officials, that are coaches, that are trainers, that are all these kind of things, including the members of the International Olympic Committee who consider themselves to be essential workers in this situation. And not all of them are going to be required to be vaccinated when they come in either. And so that has really raised the hackles of a lot of people in Tokyo, that there will be people coming in from all the corners of the world, the United States, India, Brazil, elsewhere, that have serious coronavirus rates and that might bring it with them uh, to right to Tokyo. And we've heard in the last week thereabouts that uh, Pfizer and I think it was Pfizer. Anyway, two of the organizations, two of the companies that make vaccines have said, we'll donate vaccines to Olympians. Uh, and I, you know, I think that probably in a lot of ways would settle some minds, but how confident would you be that if each of those countries was required to make sure everybody was vaccinated, that that would actually happen, even if they had the vaccines? Do you think it would? Are you confident that it would, or are you doubting that? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, let me first just state that when that was announced, on one hand, it seems like a really positive gesture of Pfizer and BioNTech to say, hey, we're, we're willing to give vaccinations to anybody who's going to be participating at the Olympics. On the other hand, in Japan, that didn't exactly play so well. It's kind of like, well, what about the regular population here? I mean, we could use some of those as well if you're just giving them out now. Uh, and secondarily, I mean, just more widely, widely politically, uh, there's plenty of people that are saying, well, why are you upholding these patent laws in general and like refusing to just like get everybody in India, for example, vaccinated as quickly as possible? But you're willing to give vaccinations to these Olympians. There's always been some tension since this discussion around vaccinations has started of Olymp Olympians being able to jump the line, as it were. And for some, when this generous gesture by Pfizer and BioNTech was actually interpreted as jumping the line instead. So it's seems on one hand to be a positive, no doubt about it. It can certainly cut down on the coronavirus transmission. Um, but as with most things with the Olympics, it's never quite that simple. Mm. Well, you point out in your piece that uh, that called for this to be stopped right now. Uh, you call you point out accurately, I believe, that this is really a financial decision. And I mean, look, when the I, I can't remember what the number is now that the Japanese that the Tokyo Olympics budget has risen to. It's well over twenty billion. I mean, it's miles beyond where it was supposed to be. That's going to be inevitable, isn't it? That that they're going to look at this and say, "We got to do this. We can't not do this when we've put this much money." in. Yeah, they, when they were bidding on the Olympics, Tokyo said that in total they would cost $7.3 billion. Well, an audit by the Japanese government before the pandemic found that it was more like $26 billion. Then you throw the pandemic on top of that. And we're looking at $30 billion when the price tag was originally only $7.3 billion. So yes, uh, those in Japan who forked over loads of taxpayer money are keen to try to claw back whatever they can in this situation. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, the money has already been spent. And so, you know, there, it's not like these are sunk costs at this point. And it's going to be very difficult to recoup costs, like, say, if you're a hotel, like you planned for having visitors, and now all of a sudden there are no overseas visitors allowed. And so, you know, there are some calls within Japan to try to get back as much as you can. But most people, I would say, are now at this point are just like, forget it. I mean, a recent poll just this week 
found that 59% of the population in Japan wants to cancel the Olympics, just full-on cancel them for good. So a lot of people aren't quite as concerned about recouping the money and are more concerned about the public health aspects of all this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Dr. Jules Boykoff is with us, Olympic expert. He's written a number of books. And as I say each time, because I really do think it's important, he is a former athlete himself because, Jules, as I've said a number of times, we've had guests on here who have been academics and you can sense the disdain for sports. And so this wouldn't be a discussion that would even matter. You're a guy who loves sports, has played professional sports, has been a national, international soccer player. Um, You know, it's a little bit of a different perspective coming from you. Yeah, I really appreciate you raising that. And so it's clear to your audience that I'm not just some grumpy academic sitting in my musty (laughs) office with a sport coat with one of those elbow pads on each um, elbow. Uh, But actually, yeah, I've spent a lot of my life um, enjoying even participating in in high-level sports, and it's it's still a very big part of my life. And it's just that sometimes in life, uh, some things get bigger than sports, and I believe that we're in one of those moments. I mean, the International Olympic Committee themselves uh, often say that the Olympics are bigger than sports. They transcend sports. And yet when we're living in a moment that truly transcends sports, uh, then they're like, oh, no, 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 actually, the Olympics are are really important and we need to have them. And, you know, one factor we haven't talked about yet that is pretty important is that inside of Japan, the numbers are increasing of coronavirus cases. They're not decreasing right now as we get closer to the Olympics. Now, they're not numbers like we're seeing in my home country here in the United States or let alone India, Brazil and those kind of places. But... Uh, the numbers still are on the rise. And compared to other countries in Asia, Japan is doing much worse. And so you throw the Olympics in that mix. And that's another reason, I think, why so many people in Japan just simply don't want the games to come there. But Jules, you know, I mentioned that you were an athlete. What about the athletes? Should they have a say in this? Should they be able to say, look, I will sign off on a document that says I am going to take my chances. I, you know, I absolve you of any risk. I want to go. I want to do this. Let me decide. Yeah. Well, let me just say first, it, it gives me no joy to share this essay that I wrote for the New York Times and your your listeners can go find it easily on the New York Times website. It, it brought me no joy to share it with athletes who I know have put forth so much energy and effort to try to make their Olympic dream come true. Um, and, and I've even gotten letters from like parents of Olympians and aspiring Olympians um, asking all sorts of questions after this essay came out. And some of them, you know, critiquing what I had to say, of course, as well, because they want their kids to be able to go to the Olympics. But I guess I just sort of feel like, on one hand, yes, athletes should have more voice when it comes to the Olympic Games in general. I think the Olympics would be much better if we gave more athletes voice and maybe got rid of some of these fossilized leaders who've been around for way too long, the dukes and princesses and sheikhs that are essentially ornamental leaders of the International Olympic Committee, and we handed it over more to athletes. But on the other hand, I don't know, there's something kind of unseemly about forcing an Olympics on a population that doesn't want it. Um, just because athletes that are going to be coming from around the world do. I really think this is a complicated situation, and Mm. I certainly don't mean to understate the complication. But at the core, if you think about it from the perspective of an everyday person in Tokyo, perhaps one who will never be able to afford a ticket to um, an actual event, if they're even allowed to go to the events, we'll see what happens with that. 
And then you're told that, no, you know what, you, we don't care what you think, basically. Yeah, we'll take it into consideration, as Mark Adams, the head of the International Olympic Committee spokesperson team, said today. But it doesn't mean that it's going to affect our decisions. And, you know, that just feels a little bit like you're getting steamrolled by an organization that doesn't seem to care that much for you. And the fact of the matter is they're kind of right. Like the International Olympic Committee, they don't come back around once the Olympics are over. They haven't been back to Brazil since they hosted in 2016. And so I think the skepticism and, and even fear that you're seeing from everyday people in Japan, maybe perhaps in this instant actually trumps some of the uh, hopes and dreams of, of these Olympic athletes, as painful as it is to see them maybe swirl down the train. Well, and, and again, with the athletes, if you could throw yourself back to when you were, say, 21 or 22 and you were still in the age group that could participate in the Olympics, and let's say you're still on the national team, and they said to you, there is covid or you can take a risk and you can go play in the Olympics. Uh, honestly, if you go back to that time frame, what would you have done? Oh, no question about it. It's a great question. I love it. Uh, no question about it. I was young. I, I didn't have the, the vision that I have now, the bigger picture vision. And I would have certainly been willing to take a risk. When you're young, you feel like you're invincible, especially if you're like a top flight athlete. Uh, that's part of your mindset. It has to be that you're invincible. And so there's no surprise to me whatsoever that athletes would be keen to press ahead and, and go to the Olympics, even under these incredibly dangerous conditions. And even under conditions that, as we've heard many athletes speak out, former Olympians, these are not going to be fun games. I mean, like, you know, you're going to get there if they happen, and you're going to be basically locked down until your event comes, hope you don't get coronavirus, and then do what you can, and then get out, basically, as quickly as you can. Whereas in previous Olympics, part of the allure is that you have all these people from around the world coming together, having fun, getting to know each other, some love is in the air, so I've, I'm told in the Olympic Village as well. And you know, it's a really? experience. Really, for the most part. I always, I always thought those stuff. stories of the giant bowls of condoms were to wear on your hands, so you didn't touch any door handles or something. <laughs> Maybe I'll let you keep believing that. But, uh, <laughs> keep, keep you pure over there, but, but yeah, definitely. You know, this is not going to be that kind of Olympics. They're not going to have to worry about those bowls of condoms uh, on the on the on, that are sitting on the table going missing because everyone's grabbing them as quickly as they can. At least that's what they're saying right now in terms of the preparation for the games. There are so many more things I wish we could talk about, and maybe we will before uh, before we get to uh, Tokyo, at least theoretically. Uh, Jules Boykoff, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for the time again tonight. Hey, thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So last night we had the mayor on to talk about the LRT announcement that we're expecting tomorrow. You've heard about this, I'm sure. It's been on the radio here on CHML all day long today. It's in the paper. It's everywhere. CHCH. What we're told, what we're expecting is that now instead of a billion dollars from the province, we're going to get $1.7 billion from the province, a matching amount from the federal government, and the city will absorb the operating costs and maintenance, and there you go, we've got an LRT system. Well, the mayor, Mayor Eisenberger, has been a strong supporter of this plan, maybe the strongest supporter of this plan, so he was obviously very excited when we had him on the show last night. That was great. We wanted to give that opportunity. We wanted to give that position the appropriate and, and you know, the airtime that it should have had because many in the city share his enthusiasm for this. However, there are others who also share skepticism or even if you don't want to use that word, a little less excitement about this. Now, I want to go back about a month, almost to the day. We were talking on this show about LRT and we had Councillor John Paul Danko on the show. He said this back then. 
I fully expect that the provincial government is going to work with the federal government and any third-party um, financing partners and come back to Hamilton Council only when they have a fully developed um, plan that's financed, that is defined, and it's going to be kind of a take-it-or-leave-it scenario. All right, so there was John Paul Danko. Pretty, pretty good guess. Well, my next guest agreed with that and took it a little step further and told me this for a story in the paper. He goes, I'm guessing there's going to be a pre-election surprise announcement from the feds, almost like a win 2.0 announcement that tries to paint council into a corner. That was Councillor Chad Collins. Guess what? Here we are. Council apparently has at least two Kresgans or two Notre Dameses because they guessed right. They got this right. Chad Collins, Ward 5 Councillor, joins us now. I appreciate you doing this today. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Are you feeling prophetic? <laughs> I wish I had a crystal ball. I probably would have guessed uh, a lot of max numbers uh, several years ago. <laughs> well, I mean, look, you weren't you and and John Paul. You were not uh-huh. wrong. The money has come, as you both yeah. thought it might, mm-hmm. uh, and now, as you said, you might be painted into a corner because who would be idiotic enough to turn down three point four billion dollars? That would, at least it would be the argument that a lot of people would say. Well, that's one probably that uh, the mayor's going to make. Um, you know, we've been kept in the dark for the better part of a year now. The province canceled the project, created their own subcommittee to look at uh, options and alternatives related to LRT, didn't rule LRT out, came back with their recommendations. And then, you know, council had lots of uh, questions when the, rec- when the recommendation came from the province um, to either fund LRT or BRT. And um, and we invited, as you know, Scott, we invited Metrolink's representatives and MTO to come to council. To, we, we had a lot of questions and we've received absolutely zero response. And over the last several months, as has been reported, there's been a flurry of activity between the province and the federal government, as well as external stakeholders who've been lobbying for the LRT to, to move forward. And, and council's been left out of those discussions. And, and, and that's where we're at today with the surprise announcement um, LRT, I guess, uh, reannounced. Uh, Mr. Ford has gone beyond his original promise in terms of bumping. If we, if um, the accounts of what's going to be announced tomorrow are correct, they're going to increase their funding allotment, and the feds are jumping in with their their ask as well. To be clear, the city's never been on for the operating costs. There were costs that the city would incur with the LRT project as it relates to lost parking revenues, increased winter maintenance. And those costs, as you had the mayor on last night, were between anywhere between seven and nine million dollars. We we accepted those as city costs, unavoidable, uh, but we've never been on for the operation of the line itself. And so that has become the new narrative recently that the city was going to take on operation. The original provincial process was design, build, and operate, and we weren't part of that. And so it's it's news, I think, to Hamilton Council that we're now being asked to to chip in on the operating costs, which was never part of the original plan. Well, and this is where this gets very confusing because the mayor was on yesterday and, and talked about the, say, $9 million mm-hmm. in operating costs that he says would be covered off by increased taxes from development and revenues. The other, the, But there is another number that keeps being thrown out there, which talks about something between 23 and 30 million. I've even heard the number Mm -hmm. that would be per year that would be involved in here. So how do we have such a massive gap? That's a long way between 9 million and 30 million or even nine and 23 million to understand what the cost to the city is going to be. 
And that's a great question. And that's the one that we were hoping to ask um, Metrolinx and MTO. Our, our question, and you've heard it from several councillors, what's expected of the city through this process? Uh, we knew when Wynne made her announcement, Premier Wynne made her announcement, that we were on for the 7 to $9 million that the mayor referenced last night. Now that the province has cancelled their procurement process, it's no longer a design-build-operate, as far as we know. And, um, and now it's being the implication is that the city is going to pick up the operating costs. And, and so that is a concern, I think, for everyone around the council table. Um, but unfortunately, as I think has been the case over the last several months, cost doesn't seem to factor into anything associated with LRT. We're, we're now approaching four times the original billion-dollar price tag. And, uh, and we still don't know what the operating car costs are associated with that. We don't have a, a 2021 number to put beside that capital price tag. And, and I think it speaks, Scott, to the whole issue of these discussions going on without Hamilton Council being involved or the broader community being involved in those discussions. Well, let me ask you about that. There's a lot of things here that I want to get to and you're bringing up. But um, last night when the mayor was on... I asked him if this now, because we seem to be at a point where something is going to happen, does this have to come back to city council for a vote on this? He said this. Well, that's a, that's a debatable question. Uh, you know, if, if it is what uh, the council originally asked for, which is a, uh, an LRT with no capital commitment to, by, by the city of Hamilton to the development of the project, and our only uh, contribution, our contribution would be the day-to-day operating and maintenance, then it doesn't require another vote because that's the official position of the city of Hamilton. It's never changed. You agree with that? If, if As long as the capital is covered and you are just operating the, day to, operating the day to day, that this is essentially a done deal and it will go ahead without council having a say in this again? Well, uh, it, it won't come back in the form of do you support or continue to support LRT? It will come back in the form of agreements that need to be established between the province and the city. So under the old agreement, when the province was out for tender, we had a memorandum of, of uh, understanding between the two organizations, between the two levels of government that spoke to how the LRT would operate on our streets. Um, the whole issue related to, um, I believe, uh, maintenance, and the operations, all of those issues need to come back at some point in time because the original process was cancelled. And so I, I would agree that I, I don't think it's coming back in a simple, you know, do you support it or not? But it, there will be opportunities for people around the table to vote, vote against this project and continue to ask a lot of tough questions. Unfortunately, we haven't had those opportunities over the last uh, year to 18 months. Do you believe that, and again, going back to the idea of what the operating costs might be and where that gap is, do you believe you're going to have a straightforward answer on what you're being expected to pay before you have to vote? Well, that's probably a better question for the province. They're the only ones that uh, they they hold that information. And, um, you know, they, they hid the increased capital costs from us, the previous government, to be fair. Um, apparently, they, they knew full well that it was well beyond the billion-dollar price tag. Council wasn't made aware of that. And now the current government has been ducking and dodging our requests for information for the last uh, better part of a year. And, and so I, I think that's a tough question for me to answer, Scott. There seems to be a track record here of withholding information and not being um, upfront with both council and, and the citizens of Hamilton. So I, it'd be a guess in terms of whether or not that will be forthcoming anytime soon. I think it's something we're owed and something we're deserved and something we need to have before any votes are taken 
on uh, LRT 2.0. All right. Would you vote for an LRT, even with $3.4 billion in infrastructure money? Would you vote yes to an LRT if you didn't know what the cost was going to be to the city? No, I, I'm, I, we're well beyond the, um, you know, the whole issue of whether Hamilton needs an LRT. I've heard loud and clear from my own constituents. They're not supportive of it. And, um, and we keep seeing this price tag um, balloon. We're beyond even talking about what the, what the benefits are from a transit perspective. This is now just about building the train. And, um, and I think it's unfortunate that we're, you know, we're, we're not looking at what kind of an investment we could make in transit for all Hamiltonians. This is you know, $4 billion essentially for one transit line. Think about the investments we could make from an infrastructure perspective and from a transit perspective, with even half of those dollars being invested here in Hamilton across the entire city, and, and a transit investment that would benefit transit users everywhere in the municipality. And unfortunately, we haven't had the opportunity to talk about bus rapid transit or other options and alternatives uh, in lieu of LRT. Let me go back to the quote that you gave that I used in the column in the paper a month mm-hmm. or so ago about the about the councillors potentially having their backs to the wall if something mm-hmm. like exactly what we're talking about happened, which you were, again, you were pretty prescient on that. Mm-hmm. If you vote no on this, you are turning down billions of dollars of investment into this city. Mm-hmm. If you say yes and operating costs are huge, you're whacking taxpayers with a huge tax increase in perpetuity. How do you, I mean, how do you make that decision? How will council make that decision to go yes or go no? Well, it means being part of the conversation. So council first and foremost needs to be part of the conversation that's occurring with the province and the federal government. I think the representatives at those levels are hearing one side of the story and they need to know that uh, the majority of Hamiltonians, in my opinion, don't don't, uh, support the project, especially with its uh, quadrupling of the recent costs and the unknown operating costs. And I believe that those discussions need to focus on alternatives. And unfortunately, we haven't had the chance to present those alternatives to the premier, who seems to be, you know, um, led down a, a certain path by certain people. And of course, the prime minister and federal representatives have yet to check in with Hamilton in terms of what our needs are. And so I, I, it needs to be a community conversation. And it needs to be a conversation with council. So, it, so it, they've made investments like bus rapid transit in other communities. There's no reason why they can't make it here in Hamilton. Do you worry ever about being wrong on this? I mean, because look, you're going to ultimately have to make a decision. And, you know, in retrospect, if it turns out that you decide and then two or three years down the road, you think, oh man, uh, you know, we should have, or we shouldn't have. Do, do you lie in bed worrying about making a wrong decision and the impact that could have? Well, I, I don't worry about being wrong. Um, I, I worry about making the right decision with and, and trying to make those decisions with all the information in front of me. It's very difficult to make decisions like the one we're talking about tonight and we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks and couple of months and probably over the next calendar year. It's very tough to make informed decisions when you don't have all the information. And that's what's hamstrung us, I think, almost from the beginning. Think about what course of action we might have taken a couple of years ago had we known that from the Liberal government that the, the budget was double or even triple what they were advertising it as. And so think about now making a decision about moving forward with this and not knowing what the operating costs are. And then only to find out a year or two from now that they're substantial and now you've locked in and there's no turning back. So I, I, I don't worry about making the wrong decision because we, sometimes in life we make them in our personal and professional lives. I, I worry about making decisions without all the information in hand.
There is, though, and we only have a couple minutes left here, but I mean, I don't think anyone's going to argue that the city does not have um, needs for public transit to be improved. And mm-hmm. this would be, uh, I mean, a lot of people would say this is a step towards fixing transit issues. Surely it would do that to some degree, would it not? Transit numbers right now are at an all-time low because of the pandemic. So it's going to be a real challenge in terms of getting ridership back, not just on the B-line route, but in all areas of the city. And what we're hearing from our constituents are that we, we, you know, and our plan was originally, before Wynn announced the original billion, was that we were going to implement the BLAST network in terms of bus rapid transit along the BLAST network. And that's, that would connect all areas of the city, Scott. And unfortunately, LRT was put to the front burner and was pushed ahead of all of the, those other priorities that council had. And, and as I said to you before, we were painted into a corner with her announcement, and it seems that others are picking up that playbook and trying to put us in the same position again. And the one thing that I have heard from a couple of people in the last 24, 48 hours, however long that we've heard about this, I guess 24 hours now, is some people have said, look, the concern is that if the provincial government has now bumped up their amount to 1.7, they'd always only been at a billion. And now the federal government has jumped in with Mm 1.7. There are other parts of the city that still need transit fixes. Mm -hmm. And the people that I've heard a couple, say a few people I've heard from saying, we're now going to go to them and they're going to say, no, we gave you your money. Leave yeah. us alone. That's right. And so yeah. that that's a concern some do have. You're right. And there's only so much infrastructure dollars to go around. And you know what both governments have been through recently in terms of just paying for the pandemic and relief and all the, the things associated with trying to get us back on track. And there, I don't anticipate another announcement beyond this one. So as you say, and I think those whoever talked to you, they're right. There, there's probably only one or two investments coming from the province and feds, and this is this is probably the end of it as it relates to infrastructure investments and transit investments. Okay, so as we wrap up here, how does this get resolved? I mean, it'll it, it seems that you know you and the mayor are not disagreeing on what it'll come back to city council. What comes back to city council may be up for interpretation, but it's going to come back in front of council. There's going to be debate on this. How does this get resolved? Well, I think we need information. It's hard to have a discussion without having all the information in hand. And there's three elections that will be held over the next 16 to 18 months at all three levels of government. And I I believe, Scott, that it needs to be a community conversation through the provincial process, through the federal process and municipal process. And hopefully Hamilton will elect those people who, who share their desire for transit investments. And it'll be one of two things. Those people who believe that transit needs to be invested in bus rapid transit and those that believe that it might be LRT. And we haven't ruled out, as you've noted in the public comments, a referendum on this. There, well, we're we're yeah. years away from a, from shovel ready. Um, and so there's, there's still a lot of time to have a conversation about what's the best investment for Hamilton. All right, last thing then. And I, I think I said last thing a moment ago, but you just reminded me of the referendum idea, which has been brought up. I don't believe under municipal law in this province that we can legally hold a binding referendum. I don't think that exists under the mm-hmm. municipal law, but we can hold a referendum. And Correct. I suppose the city could say, legally, it's not a binding referendum, but we're going to follow the will of the people here. Correct. Would that be a good idea? Uh, you know, I think there's so much debate in terms of, you know, what, what level of support there is here in, in Hamilton. If we could get all of the information in hand, operating costs, capital costs, who's responsible for paying, I don't see why it would hurt to go out to the electorate. The only, I, I know that there are people who are afraid of the answer. I think I know what the answer is, but I, I think that the majority of council might want to test the waters in terms of 
finding exactly where Hamiltonians sit on this issue because we've debated it for far too long and we're missing out on other opportunities by focusing only on this one issue. And if the answer came back, not what you were expecting, and the electorate said, yes, we want the LRT, would Chad Collins say, okay, then I'm good. I'll sign off on that. I I would follow the direction of my constituents. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Always appreciate the time. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it tonight. Thanks, Scott. Have a good night. It is, uh, look, we're, we're as he says, the, the, we keep hearing that this is a shovel-ready project, and, and that's a, a term that is, you know, it's not really shovel-ready. It's, it's closer to being shovel-ready, certainly. I don't think that that means that we're expecting that by Monday there's going to be bulldozers and diggers out on Main Street working on this. But it's, you know, there's stuff that has already happened, but we're not at the point where this is going to start tomorrow. But it's such an interesting endless ongoing debate and here's the part about this that is so frustrating fascinating and fury and whatever else it seems as though or it's see well, yeah tomorrow's announcement you would think would offer the finish line one way or another no we have we have so much debate left to go and a lot of it maybe all of it has to do with what chad just said there we still, there is still great disagreement on how much the city will have to pay for operating costs. And I don't, I don't get the sense that a whole lot of the councillors who are not totally enthusiastic about the LRT are going to vote yes without something really clear on what those operating costs are going to be. So if the, if the plan is to get this thing moving, if that's the goal, you know, some information that would show, you know, 9 million bucks that can be offset by revenues from in new infrastructure, new growth, new taxes, whatever. Okay. But this, this thing is never going to pass a council without information. That's on what it's going to cost. The, the, the opponents are just never going to go for it until they know. That's reality. That's not me saying I'm in favor or against or anything else. That's the reality. Until we know what this thing is going to cost the city, it's never going to get the official go-ahead. And that means $3.4 billion potentially is floating around up there for whatever period of time that it's able to be floating around before it disappears. It's, it's, it, there seems to be an answer. It's no more, it's no more clear today than it was or tomorrow than it was yesterday or the day before. I don't think. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.